Welcome, everybody, to tonight's lecture. Um, I'll just give a sort of a quick introduction. My name's Alan Manning. I'm from the economics uh, department um, here. And this lecture is part of um, the LSE Commission on Gender uh, Injustice and Power that's sort of been running for about uh, nine months now. And um, its final report is going to be launched later this year. And um, there's going to be a public lecture to sort of further disseminate its findings then on October the 13th, if you can put that in your uh, diaries uh, now. Um, but there's also the information generally about it is on the uh, LSE's Gender Institute uh, website. Um, if you want to join the debate on that on Twitter, I'm told that the hashtag for today's lecture is, I've got to put my glasses on at this point, um, hash LSE talks gender. All one word. All one word. Um, please, phones on silent. Um, we're being recorded uh, this evening, so hopefully you'll be able to watch it afterwards as a podcast. Um, and um, there's going to be a chance um, after the lecture to, after our speakers have spoken, to ask questions. And then after that, there's actually a reception in the atrium, which is just out of them to, the, to the left, uh, which you're um, all very welcome. Um, okay, so I'm just going to briefly give you, introduce our, our speakers this evening. Our main speaker is uh, Stephanie Stagrino, who's Professor of Economics at the University of uh, Vermont and a sort of professional, um, professorial, sorry, research associate at, at SOAS here, here in London. Um, her research has been a, l a lot about the impact of globalization on um, income distribution, well-being, uh, particularly focusing on, on gender issues, and she's um, advised all sorts of um, organizations and acted as a consultant to them on, on these kind of, of, of issues. And she's our main uh, speaker tonight, and she's going to talk for about 40 minutes, I think. And then we've got a couple of um, people responding. Um, first of all, on my right, we have Diane Negra, who's Professor of Film Studies uh, and Screen Culture and Head of Film Studies at University College uh, uh, Dublin. And she's written quite a lot of books. And do you want me to give you a plug for your latest book? Yeah, if you don't mind. If you don't mind. Okay, so her latest uh, book is called Gendering the Recession, Media and Culture in an Age of uh, Austerity. And then on my left, we have Safia Ashtiani, who's um, also a, a visiting professor at uh, Queen Mary here in London. And she's basically one of the UK's leading um, employment and discrimination uh, lawyers, but also uh, works on a lot of um, other equal uh, rights trusts. So without more ado, um, Stephanie, would you like to sure. kick off? Thanks very much. I'm just going to... Well, thank you all for being here. I want to thank um, Alan for that nice introduction. I've advised a lot of people. Not everybody's listened to me, but it uh, doesn't stop me from advising. <laughs> and um, I also want to thank the Gender Inequality and Power Commission for inviting me and also for the work they do. Uh, one of the things that you know is so compelling to me about the work that the commission is doing is its multidimensional approach to understanding inequality. And in, in many ways, economics is a profession is behind in that regard. And so uh, I really welcome the work that the commission is doing and hope can it really can, number one, translate the work that social scientists are doing for the general public, but also really expand our understanding of well-being uh, beyond income measures in a way that is captures the lives of many people who often are missing in public debates. So without further ado, I, uh, let's see, there we go. 
So what I'm going to do is, number one, I'm going to try not to talk too fast. When there's a time constraint, if you, if, uh, I sometimes talk too fast, and if I am, just raise your hand and I'll slow down. Uh, the other one I'd like to do is uh, to talk about this issue of inequality matters. Uh, and a few months ago, when I was invited by the Gender Inequality and Power Commission, uh, we really didn't know the outcome of the election. Uh, so selecting the topic at that time for this was rather relatively prescient. That said, you know, many countries uh, have adopted austerity programs in recent years and are planning to. And so I think that these comments are salient for a wide variety of, uh, of countries. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to start this by giving you uh, a very uh, sort of brief synopsis of the factors that led to the global crisis of 2008 as a way to situate my comments with regard to uh, austerity, and then go on to talk about issues regarding austerity and where I think the debate has been missing and offer some additional information about that. Of course, many of you know that in the news there's been a great deal of discussion about the growth of inequality. Uh, the graph that you see before you is the wage share of income, so the share of the economic pie that goes to workers as compared to capitalists or wealth holders. And what you see is that in a variety of countries, here for the U.S., U.K., uh, Euro area and Japan, we see a declining wage share of income uh, pretty much starting in the mid-1970s. In fact, coinciding with the period of globalization, that is the liberalization of a finance, trade, and investment across countries. Uh, the, the decline in the wage share of income is evident also in developing countries, so it's not just a rich country phenomenon. Uh, so the context of the crisis, we really can't understand the crisis until we, unless we understand the antecedents to it. And I want to just briefly describe what was happening. And here I'm referring primarily to developed countries, Europe, the U.S., Japan, and so forth. Uh, so what we've seen uh, in, in the last 20 years, especially accelerating in the late 1990s and the 2000s, is the increased precariousness of work. That is, work has become increasingly temporary, flexible, uh, and jobs uh, uh, less often pay, have benefits associated with them, and there has been what we would call a feminization of work, right? That women's jobs used to be considered secondary, not necessary to the family particularly, and for extra money. And what we're seeing is that increasingly men's jobs are looking like women's jobs, and so there's been what I would call a downward harmonization. At the same time, what we have observed is that households have increasingly had to borrow in order to stay afloat. So because of higher educational costs in the United States, higher medical costs, for example, declining contributions to pension funds and so forth, it meant that households have increasingly taken on debt in the period up to the crisis in order to stay afloat. In fact, many people are, many economists would argue that the crisis was delayed by the expansion of credit to households who were otherwise uh, uh, close to underwater. And at the same time, of course, households were sending more adults into the workforce in order to stay afloat. Uh, However, the, there's, a, there, the, the, there's a diversity of experience, if you will, when we look at sort of the working class and sort of the middle class, there's a, a great diversity of experience. Uh, subaltern groups, and by that I mean more marginalized groups, go into the crisis in much more difficult economic circumstances, and in particular, lone parent families are faced extreme hardship, both because wages have stagnated, because there's a single earner, uh, and 
because in many cases, uh, women, especially female-headed households, women were struggling to combine paid work with care of children and frequently did not have full-time jobs, either because they couldn't because of their care responsibilities or couldn't find uh, uh, full-time jobs. And so in the U.S., for example, the poverty rate of female-headed households is 51%. This is after transfers. It's very different than in some countries in Europe. For example, in Denmark, uh, single-mother families have low incomes also, but uh, because of transfers, for example, the poverty rate of single mothers is only 8%. So the ability to help single mothers stay afloat largely has had to do with social transfers and social protection. Uh, Minorities as well have struggled. Minorities uh, as well as women from dominant ethnic groups have been in the lowest paid jobs. Again, these are jobs without benefits. They're jobs without security. And as a result, these families have had few assets and savings. And what that means is that when a crisis comes, they have less ability to weather that crisis by by dipping into their savings or, for example, selling their assets. And uh, uh, if I let me just add again that because of specifically the types of jobs that uh, m- women and minorities have been concentrated in, they also have had less eligibility for various forms of social protection. I want to just say a few words about the subprime crisis that many people think of as the beginning of the crisis. As you might well understand, my viewpoint is that the crisis began well before. The official crisis began in 2008, uh, or that is the antecedents of it did. And so uh, I want to just talk for a moment about race, gender, and the subprime crisis. Before the crisis, minority uh, women and men and women from the dominant ethnic group were what we would say super excluded from credit markets. That is, even even those who were theoretically eligible that were determined to be credit worthy frequently faced uh, high degrees of discrimination and access to credit. Uh, but as a result of the crisis or the, 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 the trajectory of the financial sector in the 2000s meant that minorities and women were super included in subprime loans. And in fact, if you look at the people who had subprime loans, minorities and women, 60% of them were actually eligible for prime, sec- prime mortgage lending, that is the lowest interest rates with the, best, uh, with the best terms. But they were super included in these predatory loans, loans with teaser rates, with adjustable rate mortgages, with balloon payments, and so on and so forth. So it, the, there is the lead up to the crisis is and the 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 effects the the subprime crisis was very gendered and raced in the way it unfolded. Uh, I'm going to just re- re- review briefly what I know all of you know. Having lived, we have now lived through this crisis for seven years. And uh, just to remind you that the, of course, the initial effects of the crisis was the widespread destruction of jobs. Bank credit froze up because banks had toxic assets. They therefore didn't trust each other to lend to each other. Neither were they willing to lend even to creditworthy borrowers. And so as a result of this decline in jobs, we had a decline in income, and as a result of that, a decline in revenues. And indeed, that is exactly the way the tax system is designed to operate. That is, it's an, considered an automatic stabilizer, that when incomes decline, tax payments decline. And, and what we expect, that is a solution, is budget deficits during the crisis. <laughs> 
But the effects of the crisis were not evenly uh, felt, and I want to just show you some unemployment data here for both the United States and the U.K., so here, if you look at the bottom line, the dark blue line, what you have is, uh, is white women, and above that, the yellow line is white men. And you see, in fact, that beginning in, in 2008, you see that the, uh, the white male unemployment rate rose faster than the white female unemployment rate. But if you notice, by the uh, 2012, actually, that divergence has been eliminated. So the so-called man session, that is the disproportionately negative effects of the crisis on men, uh, at least for white men, pretty much dissipated by 2012. Uh, the, the turquoise line is black women, and the red line is black men. And so what we see is that disproportionately, the, what I call the bad news of capitalism, that is the effects of instability and unemployment, redounded on black women and men, and very, very high rates for black men. <coughs> Uh, these are the data for the UK. The red, uh, the white, I don't have them gender disaggregated, but the red line is, uh, is, is white uh, UK residents, and the green is, is black, um, I don't know the lingo here, actually. I would say black Americans, I don't know, black, uh, black Brits, how's that? And uh, uh, I'll get corrected at dinner tonight, hopefully. Uh, and in any case, what you see is that you know that with the with the um, with the onset of the crisis, that the gap becomes wider, and you see it uh, it continues even after uh, the slowdown in or the kind of reduction in unemployment in the United States. It actually gets wider here, and in the last couple of years, uh, not only is the black unemployment rate higher than the white unemployment rate, but it is in fact increased while the white unemployment rate has declined. So in fact, even recently, the, the gap has become wider. Uh, race and ethnicity uh, are a story that, are, uh, that is, is relevant for the rest of Europe. I just have some data here for you for Switzerland, Germany, and Denmark. <coughs> and if you look here, um, let's see if I can do this. I've never done this. Here we go. If you look at the, uh, the, the, female, the female column here, uh, and you look at the unemployment rate for foreign-born women in Switzerland compared, compared to native-born women in Switzerland, what you see is that foreign-born women are 3.6 three time, 3. times more likely to be unemployed during this crisis than uh, native-born women. The gap is very high. It's more than double in Germany. And similarly, it's very high in uh, in, in Denmark. And I, I, this goes to one of my, the points that I'd like to make in this in that we cannot really uh, analyze gender in an uninterrogated way with regard to race and ethnicity, and that the negative effects of the crisis have disproportionately redounded on women of color, uh, as well as men of color, in Europe as well as in the United States. One of the things that I think has received uh, too little attention has been the impact of the crisis on single mothers. Mm. So here are some data for you for the United States. Uh, women who maintain families, that means they're single moms, as compared to married men and women. And so the data go from uh, January January of 1990 through December of 2013. And so what you see in around um, in, in roughly 2008, let me just point it out right over here, uh, you see there's a, a big uptick in the unemployment rate of married men. Of course, married women's unemployment rises, but men's disproportionately. But what you see is a surge in unemployment 
uh, rates for single mothers. Of course, this is, this is particularly disturbing because they are the only income earners in these households. And um, for those of you looking for a PhD dissertation topic, this is really uh, a great one in the sense that there has really, it's really a recent phenomenon that we have been able to focus on the impact of crises, particularly on single mothers. And there's a term that's emerged uh, for this called family responsibility discrimination. Uh, so this has been a, I don't have these data for the UK, and I think it would be interesting to look at them. <clears throat> Uh, so how do families survive the crisis? Well, in the second round, of course, they deplete their savings, their assets fall. Uh, but for many, there is bankruptcy, there is homelessness. And for many other, and for, for many, there is long-term negative effects on their access to credit, right? Their credit rating declines. So the effects of the crisis are not just today. They are, in fact, well into the future. Uh, of course, additional effects at the, at the aggregate level for national economies is that uh, there's a continued decline in tax revenues as unemployment continues to be high. Uh, governments have spent money to bail out banks, for example, and there has been an increased social spending. And so deficits are the normal and predictable and intended effect of recessions. That is, they are the solution rather than the problem. And... Uh, uh, you are all familiar with the discussion about debts and deficits here, I know. But I want to simply remind us that that is, in fact, their intended goal is to help families smooth income during periods of crises. Well, there are many other second-round effects. Uh, one, of course, is that when incomes decline, when more members of the household are unemployed, it means that households have to save money. One way that they do that is that many services that they had contracted for in the paid labor market or in the, in, in the market they now provide themselves. So families now cook more meals at home, uh, they, uh, and they provide essentially more unpaid labor at home. And, of course, typically women are more likely to provide those services than men. There's been some research that has looked at the unpaid labor burden of women during crises relative to men. And what we see is, the, although men, men's unemployment rate rose more than women's, uh, men did slightly more care labor, but Many more women joined the labor force in order to help make ends meet during the crisis, and so overall women's time burden increased disproportionately relative to men's, and their labor time increased. Um, I just want to just find a note here, just a second. I'm not keeping up with my notes. So one of the things we're, we've seen in this crisis, it's not true in all crises, but one of the things that we've seen is that there's no reserve army effect. And that is that in some crises, what we've seen is that women are pushed out of the labor force when there's a crisis with the argument that men are more deserving of jobs when jobs are scarce than women. That is not happening in Europe and in the United States. Um, but one of the things that we have observed is that in terms of access to employment, uh, typically lower, more, less educated women are less likely to be in the labor force during this crisis and even before this period of time. So that group, for a variety of reasons, has suffered worse con consequences with regards to access to employment. Um, there are third round's effects of austerity. I'm going to just mention a few and really want to talk about the effects of austerity with you. So uh, in, in a number of countries, there has been an increase in the retirement age. Of course, social expenditures have been cut, uh, and there have been higher prices for public goods, such as education and health. 
And I want to just talk for a moment about the rationale for austerity. Um, The argument amongst some mainstream economists, uh, who are in fact a distinct minority of those who support austerity policies, uh, as well as politicians, is that uh, if we cut public sector spending, largely through cutting social spending, not necessarily through raising taxes, and not necessarily cutting military spending, uh, that we will improve the economic outlook of a country. And the argument is that countries that run deficits are viewed by financial markets as being profligate, Uh, and untrustworthy, and that therefore the financial sector will demand higher interest rates to compensate them for the risk of lending to countries with deficits. And the argument is that with higher interest rates, borrowing costs rise for households, they rise for businesses, and then economic growth will be slowed. So that has been the rationale that has been... um, that has been argued, but I'm going to suggest to you, in fact, that austerity is bad economics uh, for a variety of different reasons. One is, of course, the the short-run costs of austerity. So I'm going to talk briefly about those, uh, and then I'm going to talk about the long-run costs of austerity. Uh, With regard to the short-run costs of austerity, one of the things that happens when the government cuts spending is that there's a multiplier effect, that the government cuts spending, there's less income going to households, they spend less. Businesses therefore cut back on production. When they cut back on production, they lay off workers. Those workers have less income. They spend less. Businesses lay off even more workers, and so on and so forth. So in essence, you have a middle class that is really unable to spend uh, sufficiently to stimulate economic growth. Uh, Furthermore, as incomes are falling, Tax revenues are declining. They are not rising. And as a result of that, what we could anticipate, theoretically at least, is that debts and deficits actually rise as a result of austerity rather than fall. Let's see what we see. So here's some data on austerity and economic growth. This is for a, a number of countries in Europe as well as the United States. And so on the On the bottom axis here, what you see is austerity as a percentage of GDP. That is, uh, for the economists in the room, it is the cyclically adjusted primary uh, primary balance in the budget. And uh, on on the vertical axis, what you see is the average annual rate of GDP growth. And what we see here... It's not dissimilar to what we have seen in other countries globally is that as the as with those countries with the largest austerity uh, cuts have actually grown the slowest over this past four year period of time. This is some data from uh, actually from the OECD, but it's a study that the Economic Policy Institute in the United States did and what you see is that uh, that the U.S. economy and the British economy, uh, after the crisis, the onset of the crisis, and both adopted stimulus packages of various sizes. The economies were slowly pulling out of the crisis. Uh, but when the British government adopted austerity in 2010, we begin to see that growth stagnates in the U.K. relative to what's happened in the United States. One of the things that's been interesting to me is that the... Um, uh, the chief economist at the IMF, whose name is Olivier Blanchard, also writes a, an economics textbook, a macroeconomics textbook, and I, I teach from that textbook and just spent last semester talking about it. And in this textbook, he talks about how, um, how government cuts to government spending actually do not have a negative effect on economic growth. 
he has since recanted, if you will, uh, and recently the IMF put out a paper saying that it has actually misestimated the impact of government spending and, as a result, government cuts. That is, that the effects uh, of austerity are, in fact, much larger than they anticipated. And perhaps not surprisingly, real wages have stagnated in the United States and they have actually fallen in the U.K. during this period of time. So... You know, one might ask, you know, what's going to happen? I know that everybody's asking that because that's all I've talked about here in the UK for the last several days. Um, and what will happen as a result of austerity? What will happen as a result of some uh, particular tax cuts that have been impo- that have been uh, discussed and some that have already happened? And I'd like to I'd like to suggest to you why I think that uh, the 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 picture, uh, at least in the next few years, is a relatively bleak one unless something uh, a different tack is changed taken. One is that consumer debt in the UK is at a seven-year high. And in fact, it's also, it's also been very high in the United States. Uh, non-mortgage debt, for example, uh, it was roughly 9,000 pounds per household. And on average, uh, people have roughly 1,200 pounds of uh, credit card debt. One of the interesting things was uh, that, I, that I, in looking at this, that I found is that one in five of those who are aged 35 to 44 say that they borrow in order to meet their needs. What that suggests is that even if there were any tax cuts as a a preferred method of stimulating the economy, (laughs) what households tend to do when they have a high degree of debt is they tend to pay off their debts rather than spending more. And so we wouldn't anticipate much benefit from that. Moreover, uh, policies that improve the business climate, for example, or reduce taxes on corporations are also unlikely to have a negative effect, are, are unlikely to have a positive effect. And the reason is the following, that businesses may like lower costs, they may like higher profits, but they're not going to hire more workers if there is not any demand for their goods and services. In fact, I've thought of writing an economic textbook <laughs> that was only on these slogans of economists. And here's the slogan. There are no buyers if there are, there are no sellers if there are no buyers. Mm-hmm. So if people are not demanding goods and services because their wages have stagnated, then businesses are simply not going to hire more workers. And as a result of this, what it means is that uh, monetary policy, for example, low interest rates are not going to be able to solve this problem either. Uh, so I want to just uh, summarize uh, just a little bit about what I see as the gender effects of austerity. Uh, and, you know, to, to some extent, pretty much talking about Europe as well as the United States. And that is that although we started out this crisis saying that the negative jobs effect, uh, the negative effect redounded more on men than on women, uh, one of the things that we're seeing, certainly I think uh, especially in the United States, is that uh, social spending cuts, especially at the state level in the United States, have disproportionately affected women because they tend to be much more employed in the public sector. Uh, And in Europe and in the United States, we see foreign-born women in in Europe and women of color in the United States most particularly affected. Um, And and so I think that, you know, as I've watched this, uh, what what I want to suggest to people is to be uh, to, to disaggregate, if you will, then uh, rather than saying that men are hurt more than women or women hurt more than men, there are these intergroup inequalities within these groups that I think matter very much for the conversation, especially if we want to build political support for different solutions. 
I think the gender effects are, are very contradictory that are happening. On the one hand, as I've mentioned, women's care burdens are rising. On the other hand, more women are in the paid economy or going into the paid economy because men have lost their jobs. Uh, there is, in my view, you know, we have been living this for the last 30, 40 years, a real shift in our gender systems. I think this is true for many countries, but it's a specific place in Europe and the United States, and a somewhat different place, I would say, in Japan and East Asia. And that is, as I mentioned, we're seeing this downward harmonization with men increasingly uh, unable to access jobs that will allow them to fulfill their male breadwinner role. And uh, instead, what we see is men uh, also having to make do with part-time work or with, uh, with flexible jobs and, and so on and so forth. And this has led to a great deal of gender conflict. Uh, and what we are observing is, uh, for example, that we are seeing rates of family dissolution. Men can't perform their breadwinner role and sometimes will leave the household. And in some cases, it's women who are asking men to exit a marriage because, again, men can't fulfill their, their role as economic providers. There's a, an interesting study called She Left, He Left, which documents higher divorce rates as un, male unemployment rises. The other thing that we see when male unemployment rises, and we don't see this when female unemployment rises, is an increase in domestic violence. Uh, and again, related to what I think is the, the changing dimensions of masculinity uh, as triggered by a changing economic structure, not only in sort of the developed countries, but also in developing countries. We see this in Costa Rica, a number of Central American countries in which women are gaining access to service sector jobs and tourism and so forth, but men have been uh, lost their jobs in manufacturing. So this isn't a first world or third world or second world phenomenon. I think it's a, a broader phenomenon. So one of the things that I want to do as an economist is to broaden our lens to think about the implications of these gender effects at the macroeconomic level. And there's a study recently done by Nata Duvery at the University of Galway who does just this. She did a study in Vietnam that looks at the cost of domestic violence. And so they did a study that looked at the prevalence uh, and the incidence of, of domestic violence. And they <coughs> then made an effort to cost those that domestic violence. So what was the cost of repairing a broken tooth, a broken arm? What was the cost of losing uh, days of work? What was the impact on children of uh, lost schooling and so forth? Their estimate came out to be that the loss in GDP for Vietnam was 1.4% of GDP. Now, if you think about that, that's about roughly the rate that the U.S. and the U.K. economy have grown annually for the last few years. Uh, so the costs are, are very, very significant, and, and are, are, we are unable to make good policy <laughs> if we are not accounting for the full effect of the types of, of the policies that have been enacted and strategies that we have tried to adopt to deal with the crisis. So I want to talk a little bit about the long-run effects of austerity. And it is here where I think that the most work needs to be done. Uh, and I'm going to just say, if, I'll eventually tell you why that is and what I, the reason I think it's been ignored and so forth. But in particular, I want to talk about the effects of austerity, especially in terms of cutting social spending uh, and uh, consequences of underinvestment. 
And uh, while some people call it social spending, I'd like to suggest that what we need to call this is social infrastructure spending. Uh, Just as we have physical infrastructure that is needed, we need roads and harbors and and, uh, electricity and energy and so forth for our economies to run, we also need investment in social social well-being beyond education uh, to include socialization of children, health, and so on and so forth. Uh, this is a, a graphic by my dear friend and great economist, Nancy Fulbray, uh, who wrote a paper recently called The Production of People by Means of People. Uh, and that is really, I think, the, the forgotten uh, and perhaps invisible aspect of what feminist economists have added to the discussion of economics in recent years, and that is that people are a produced commodity. Failure to invest in the production of people means that an economy does not have really the railroad tracks, if you will, to build on in the future. And, of course, in this graphic, it suggests to you that women in uh, in particular do care work. Uh, In many countries, men do as well, but disproportionately, women do care work. And and we think of care work as investing in children, (laughs) but each one of us every day goes home, we reproduce ourselves, and come back to work. We clean our homes, we buy food, we take care of, we do emotional care with each other, uh, and so forth. So all of those really are what I would consider to be part of the care economy, including caring for the elderly. I often think of it in this way, that uh, that uh, machinery depreciates, and so do people. And part of our job as human beings is to take care of those of us whose, whose physical well-being is depreciating over time. So that also comprises care work. Uh, so there's a, the Women's Budget Group in UK is one of the few groups that I know that has c- costed the impact of austerity uh, in the UK, and uh, I think it is it would provide a welcome model for other countries to do. Uh, so these are some data that they've put together that looked at the combined tax and spending cuts, uh, t- tax increases and spending cuts from 20. Uh, 10 to 2015 as a percent of net income. And one of the things that you see here is that the, the, the least, the, the most modest effect is on couples with no children. So roughly uh, 4%, their income has declined roughly 4%, greater for couples with children of around 9.5%, even greater for men who are head of households of around 11.5%, and the greatest effects are all of all of these cuts are on women who are single mothers. Roughly 15.5% of their net income is declined as a result of the austerity policies of the UK government. Here's what I think is the challenge of this. We know a great deal from, um, from a variety of disciplines beyond economics that once born, the most important years of a child's life are roughly from the ages of zero to five. And uh, we also know that teamed production defines how we care for children, <laughs> that it is not only parents, it is the family, it is social services, and society at large, our educational system, and so forth. Uh, that said, children's, early, uh, children's development is critically affected by the well-being of mothers. When we put, take this into, in, when we put this in the context of the uh, sharp increase in unemployment of single mothers, 
and social expenditures that have disproportionately affected single-parent families, I, I would suggest to you that we have very serious long-run uh, negative effects in our future. Uh, in the United States and in Ireland, roughly 25% of households are lone-parent households, 20% in Europe. In the state where I live in Vermont, over 30% of children grow up in uh, single-parent households. That is, 30% of all children are living in these households that are disproportionately experiencing these effects of austerity as well as exclusion from job markets. I'm going to read you. Uh, uh, I'm going to read you of, of some of the things that we have learned from the social welfare literature, the psych psychological literature, uh, and the sociology literature with regard to the relationship between mothers' well-being and children's well-being. Uh, I'm going to go through this a little fast not because you need to remember it, because I want to just give you a sense of the extensiveness. So we know that children who are inadequate, children of inadequately nourished mothers uh, suffer low birth weight and intellectual impairment. Mothers' poor health affects uh, children in utero, uh, so beginning before they were born and long into their future. Uh, low life expectancy of mothers, who often are those with, with, uh, with uh, economic distress, affects their daughter's health and education prospects. Mother's mental health has negative effects on children's development, and in particular, <coughs> a mother's depression, which is highly correlated with financial stress. Um, adults' physical work capacity is determined not only by their nutritional intake today, but by their entire nutritional history. People born, poor, uh, born into poorer households experience poorer childhood health, lower benefits from human capital investments, poor health in adulthood, and all of these affect productivity and well-being. One of the things I've been doing a lot of research and, and um, exploration in the area of um, attachment uh, and counseling and, and, and uh, a variety of areas related to this. And one of the things that we know is that families in which there is severe financial def uh, stress, uh, ha this produces impacts on children. <laughs> and in particular, what those children experience is toxic stress. So uh, that stress is caused by extreme and prolonged adversity in the absence of a supportive network of adults or social services that surround them and help them to adapt. And what is critical about this is it's not the stressful experience itself that has negative effects on children, but it actually uh, it, it, it is the, um, the architecture of the developing brain that is affected. And that is that it often leads to trauma and childhood trauma with symptoms very similar to PTSD that have negative effects into the future. And often the way that this manifests is that children will be in school and they have uh, difficulty re regulating their emotional behavior. And so what you find is kids who are in stressed households uh, will act out in schools. They are frequently therefore disciplined at a higher rate than other children who might not come from trauma backgrounds. So they are excluded from school more frequently. And moreover, this tends to reinforce stereotypes. It tends to be uh, kids from single-parent households. It tends to be kids from poorer households. And often, because there's a conflation between that and kids uh, from uh, families of color, it tends to be kids of color. And so it reinforces the stereotype that poor kids, kids of color, are behaviorally marginal and need to be disciplined, and it reproduces stereo racial and gen stereotypes and stereotypes about single-parent families that justify exclusion of kids with, therefore, lifelong impacts, not only on their education as well as in other areas. Um, 
So, uh, so these effects are, are really have been very difficult, I think, for economists to quantify, but I think that they are very significant. I'm just going to show you a few more slides about this. This is a study that was done in Canada, and it looks at child welfare outcomes uh, by perceived economic hardship. So the family identified <laughs> itself as having economic hardship or not. Uh, these were families that were reported to child welfare services uh, for concerns perhaps about some form of abuse. And what you find is that disproportionately that, for example, in the first, in the first two bars here, amongst those that reported uh, and investigated and the substantiation of maltreatment uh, by family members was significantly greater in families with economic hardship than no economic hardship. There was, uh, ongo- the, the cost of ongoing services was significantly greater in families uh, with economic hardship. And finally, children placed for foster care were significantly, the percentage of children reported who were placed in foster care were significantly greater, likely to be higher in families with economic hardship. Um, James Heckman, a a neoclassical economist uh, who's at the University of Chicago, it's not an institution known for progressive thinking in a lot of ways, but I have been really impressed with the work that he has done. He has really devoted himself in the last years to the impact on invest, the impact of early childhood education investments. And uh, so this is a graph of, of some of his work. It's a kind of popular graph. And what it shows is that the rate of return of a dollar invested in children in early years is much greater than if we wait to invest later on. And so he is a great proponent of early childhood education. <coughs> and in fact, what he estimates is that a dollar invested in children today uh, in early childhood education that is before five years old will yield a rate of return of $7 over the entire lifetime of the child, whether that is in savings for social welfare spending, whether it is in uh, increased earnings for the child, <coughs> or a variety of things. So I want to suggest to you that the shift, one of the shifts that needs to happen is that when we talk about social spending, it is not luxury spending, it is not discretionary spending, it is investment spending. And it is spending that pays for itself in the future if done. And it suggests the reverse, that if we don't make those expenditures today, that what we essentially is depleting our human capital, if you will, or human capabilities in our economies. Uh, so early, early childhood spending and austerity cuts in that area are significant, uh, whether it is directly or because of the impact on, on working families, whether due to unemployment or other factors, wage, wage stagnation and so forth. Nevertheless, there is also a significant problem with youth unemployment as well. Uh, and so we are finding that for a number of, of the, in a number of countries, there has been a higher uh, mandatory uh, retirement age, or in many cases, people are working longer because literally the crisis of 2008 was traumatizing. And although the stock market has recovered for a lot of people who have pensions, many people are still unwilling to retire because of that, because of the trauma of that event and a fear for the future. Of, of another uh, another financial crash, and so what that main, means is that there are fewer job slots for youth, uh, and uh, so what we have is, is extraordinarily high youth unemployment. Uh, so, for example, it's sixty percent in Greece, fifty percent in many countries in Europe, uh, and in the United States. I have a number here of Chicago, uh, a youth unemployment rate of ninety-two percent 
in the city of Chicago. If you look at some of the other major metropolitan areas of the United States, you see very you see perhaps not as dramatic as Chicago, but certainly of, of very, very great concern. So in the city of Milwaukee, which is not known to be a race, racially divisive city, the employment rate of young, of, of young blacks is 29%. It means roughly 70% are unable to find a job. When you can combine that with the incarceration rate of young black men, uh, I think that, that, that you can understand that for many of us, one of our deepest concerns is about uh, young men of color in the United States. <clears throat> Uh, with regard to the retirement issue, one of the things that is happening, and here's another Ph.D. dissertation topic if you're interested, is that uh, because, uh, because people are staying in the workforce longer, and especially women, what that means is that they are often unavailable to provide care for young women or young, uh, their, their daughters or sons who want to go to work but whose wages are not enough to afford child care. So that may be one of the inhibiting factors that we find in the labor force participation of young women in the U.K., who are unable to uh, enter the labor force. Um, you know, my other life, I'm an artist and uh, a photographer, in fact, and uh, so I, I'm quite taken with the, the power of image to convey things that sometimes words can't do. This is a, a photographic series by a photographer by the name of Yves Marchand. Uh, he is, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful, beautiful series of photographs that document the decay of Detroit because of lack of infrastructure investment. And uh, I, I want to suggest to you that this is in some ways emblematic of the direction we are going in with austerity if, in fact, we continue to significantly cut social infrastructure spending. Uh, and um, I want to add to this what I see especially about youth unemployment is that it creates this problem of hysteresis, and that is that unemployment becomes permanent. Why is that? Essentially because as people uh, are out of work for a long period of time, what that means is that their skills erode. And uh, moreover, we see the problems that we have seen in Baltimore and Chicago, I'm sure many places in the UK, that is social dysfunction. We see depression, suicide, violence, and family dissolution. When I was in, the U was, I was in Ireland last year, uh, one of the things I learned about when I was uh, at the University of Galway was, of course, the very high suicide rate amongst young men there. So we are, in essence, we are depleting our, 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 our um, the wealth of our nations, as it were, by the failure to invest in young people, but in all of us, in a sense. So I want to just summarize just very briefly here about the class, race, and gender effects. Um, I... Uh, uh, I'm not going to read these, actually, because I've said them already, but here's what I want to suggest to you. One of the challenges that we have in this public discourse about how we respond to crises, how we respond to high debts and deficits and so forth, is that the, the research that we have in terms of the impact on human well-being, <coughs> on lifetime, the, the lifetime effects of policies taken today, is partly that they are from different disciplines. And they are not, the effects on children's cognitive abilities is not so easy to assign a dollar value to, for example. So because we can't monetize it, it doesn't get incorporated into public discussions. But I hope that what I've done is convince you, in fact, that those costs are very, very high. And, you know, one of the best things that economists do is that they are able to assess not only the benefits of various policy solutions, but the costs. But in this area, there has been a, 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 a huge failure because 
in part because economists are not sufficiently interdisciplinary, because they don't talk to people in other disciplines, they don't read these, this research, and therefore we have a distorted sense of what it means to cut social expenditures today and fail to see what the impact is uh, on the future. Uh, I want to just show you somewhat, uh, I think there's a lot of data on this, but I want to just show you uh, some of the what's happened since the, the uh, crisis began in 2008 for U.S. data. Not everybody has suffered. Uh, the stock market fell to roughly 8,000 in 2008, and it's up to 18,000 today. Uh, so wealth holders have done very do well. And here what you see is a graph that shows you corporate profit rates. Uh, they, have, they have recovered since the beginning of uh, since the crisis, uh, and so has the earnings of small business owners during that period of time. Given that wages have stagnated, we have to assume that the profits of small businesses have increased as well. On the right-hand graph, what you see is simply... Uh, looking at white, black, white wealth. And again, what we've seen is that white wealth has recovered in, uh, uh, subsequent to the crisis, and in fact, the wealth gap between whites and blacks is increasing once again. I always use you know, blacks in these analyses. Hispanics also are negatively affected, as well as Native Americans. Uh, but this is the group for which there is the most extensive data. Um, so the, the uh, effects of the, the origins of the financial crisis are not re recent, and uh, in, in a very real sense, the environmental principle, which has dominated in Europe and to some extent in the United States, which is let the polluter pay, has really not been applied in terms of the financial crisis. And I would suggest to you that the underlying structural problems that we began with, we cannot solve with austerity problems. In fact, we are, in fact, exacerbating those structural problems. Um, I want to suggest to you an alternative framework uh, that, uh, that we can adopt in thinking about these issues, and one that I would call a, a social <laughs> sustainability framework that accounts for not only what the purported benefits might be of austerity in terms of debt reduction and deficit reduction, but also the long-term co the, the long costs that I've, kind of, that I've outlined to you. Uh, and, and the simple principle behind this is that we have to look at not only the short-term but the long-term, and uh, we have to look at the human sustainability of policies that depend as much on social infrastructure as physical infrastructure. And I think we might ask ourselves, why has this not been done? I mean, part of the reason is that it's difficult to convert social welfare research, uh, some of the psychological research and so forth into quantitative terms that fit economic categories. But I also think that we suffer from policy myopia. <clears throat> so myopia is, uh, well, it can be many things, but it's, uh, in, at least in economic terms, an excessive discounting of the future. And in many, <laughs> in many ways, that's what happens with economic crises. It, is it produces a fear and anxiety, and it causes tunnel vision. There's a, a book recently called Scarcity. I encourage you to read it that talks specifically about this effect. This is a, this is a phenomenon that happens uh, whether we are talking about economics or socially, that people under stress be, develop tunnel vision. They can only look at what is right in front of them. And part of it is because they're triggering the limbic portion of their brain, which is the fight-or-flight 
mechanism that uh, was much needed thousands of years ago and less needed today. But when that happens, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex, which is the portion of the brain that is uh, wiser, that has a longer duration in terms of its range of thinking and uh, analysis and so on and so forth. And so I think in, in many ways that fear is what has affected voting populations during this period of time. And I think that economic elites that have benefited from cutting the size of government have really utilized that fear as a way to put through austerity policies. Um, I think there are other factors that, that lead to myopia. That is our inability to calculate the full costs of decisions that we're making today, as well as what might be some of the benefits, and that is that we focus on a market economy and what can be quantified, and, and therefore we exclude social re reproduction. We also have very gender and racially biased policymaking, and fin finally, financial speculation emphasizes financial rather than human and social indicators, and I think that that is a discourse that can be reoriented and ought to. I'm just going to say a couple of words. I know there's going to be a discussion, and I don't really want to belabor this too much more, but I just want to say a couple of words about what might be alternatives uh, were we to get there. And uh, one is wage-led growth. That is, uh, raising wages as a way to stimulate demand. Job creation responds to increased demand. Uh, there's, if, for reasons un, un, that I really can't explain, there's a wave in the U.S. of raising minimum wages by Walmart, by uh, Aetna. Uh, there's a town in Washington State called SeaTac, Washington, that has just raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And I live in the state of Vermont where we have one of the highest minimum wages in the country, higher than the federal minimum wage. We have the lowest, one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. Um, uh, second of all, we also have to utilize public spending in a way that prioritizes the needs, not just of workers, but in particular groups that are marginalized. In some cases, that will be single mothers. In other cases, it will be ethnic minorities. Uh, and in other cases, simply low-income households. Um, and finally, one of the things that we have to do, and I think in an age in which there has been an effort to diminish the reputation of government spending, government spending has to be well-targeted, and uh, it has to be targeted in a way, in a, in a way that really, uh, that, that really um, um, capitalizes on the investment quality of investment. So, for example, public, public infrastructure spending has been shown to generate a rate of return beyond the initial investment. As well, and as I've suggested to you, social infrastructure spending can do the same. And I think the challenge for us as economists is to articulate what those policies might be, what those policy targets might be, just as James Heckman did, and make a case to the public that actually what we are doing is investing. We are not simply luxury spending so that the claim can't be made that we can't afford to do the kind of spending that we need to do for social infrastructure and in particular for children. Uh, and of course, uh, there are many ways to raise revenue one is, is the financial transactions tax. I understand it's not popular here, but uh, I will repeat to you what my dissertation advisor told me a few years ago when we were having discussions, and that is if we don't put these ideas on the table to debate, they never will see the light of day. I have, you know, I am you know, maybe genetically an optimist, uh, but I'm also optimistic because of what I have seen as changes in major conservative institutions in recent years. Uh, for the IMF, for example, you Years ago, opposed 
capital controls, that is, opposed restrictions on countries limiting the flow of finances across borders, arguing for free markets and uh, financial liberalization. Today, the, fi- the IMF is, in fact, willing to accept capital controls in some conditions. And we're finding movement at the World Bank in a variety of areas and so forth. So I, I want to simply suggest that we be optimistic, that we put these proposals on the table, and that we continue to discuss them. And I want to thank you all for your attention. Thank you. Well, I have the pleasure this evening of responding to uh, this very rich and informative talk by Stephanie. And I just said to her that I'm very glad that she closed on such an optimistic note because I, I fear my remarks this evening are rather pessimistic. I do research on gender and media. So the remarks I'm going to make uh, will be obviously in that light. And uh, my work is really motivated by the concerns of cultural studies with how conventional systems of power uh, are made to seem natural and inevitable. So um, those are just a few brief, hopefully ex- useful, explanatory comments. And I want to begin by saying, firstly, you know, how wonderful it is to see how much good research is now being done and, and across disciplinary lines on post-recession austerity cultures, which for a few years uh, after 2008, living as I do in a country incredibly hard hit um, by the, the global financial collapse, it did feel as if this phenomenon, it, it, academics took a, took, took a, a deep breath before really engaging. And and now that research is starting to accumulate at a fast rate, which is wonderful to see. I'm starting from the position that mainstream popular culture um, is generally conservative and that it it is ideologically committed to, particularly in the the recessionary or post-recessionary period, to managing or, if you like, repressing the abundant evidence that's accumulating around us of system failure. And I want to offer a few brief comments about some of the ways that media discourses have operated in sync with the developments that Stephanie has been mapping. Um, One of the points that Stephanie's research uh, clearly brings out is how despite a very quick uh, discursive consolidation around the time of, of the 2008 uh, recession, it, around this idea that the recession was was almost uniquely impacting men, right? So the term man session or he session comes very quickly into use. Um, but I think Stephanie's research shows us how, how clear the impact on, on women has been. I'm thinking specifically of the data she's presented about the high rates of unemployment among women who maintain families, as well as the point uh, about a post-recessionary rise uh, in most often female unpaid care labor. My sense is that the, the, the kind of economic and cultural developments since 2008 have essentially upped the ante on what, what I see as pre-existing emotional protocols for post-feminist femininity, the kind of the public rules for how to, to, to be uh, female, and, and also the kind of the compulsory cheerfulness that uh, critics like Barbara Ehrenreich have particularly identified as, as a signal feature of American life. What I'm suggesting is it's been very hard for us to talk about the impact in our emotional our public emotional culture about the devastating impacts of, of, of the recession on people's lives. 
And I think one of the things that's happened is, is we've seen instead women in particular being increasingly drawn into entrepreneurial self-branding, um, the often competitive monitoring of self and others through technologies like Facebook, the escalation of workplace expectations amidst what a, a very smart um, theorist called Melissa Gregg has called the ambient work style that we now live with, that the boundaries between being at work and not being at work are getting more and more porous. Um, and this has led in some ways to, to, to women um, being forced to invest in what I would think of as a doubling down of dysfunctional hyper-productivity regimes and specifically affective compensation for failing institutions. And what I mean by that is I think we, we've, we've had very intense cultural messaging that has sought to rewrite institutional and social failures as the individual failures of women. And women, many of them anyway, seem to be buying it. So that's, that's one of my concerns. It's been observed that the financial crisis may have started off looking like an economic problem, but was ideologically reworked into the political problem of how to allocate blame and responsibility. Reality TV has emerged as a particularly conspicuous site for testing and consolidating gendered austerity norms. Coupon clippers, fairy job mothers in the UK, mavens of thrift have modeled social norms of resilience and adaptation. They're almost always women. Uh, while we've seen a parallel emphasis in other forms of reality TV on super wealthy undercover bosses, secret millionaires, and authoritarian <laughs> apprentice assessors. Um, again, it's the split between gender lines I think is, is, is quite remarkable there. Meanwhile, as Yvonne Tasker and I have written about engendering the recession, the cinematic corporate melodrama uh, invites our identification with and sometimes our sympathy for corporate CEOs and entrepreneurs in manifestations including the social network and the wolf of Wall Street. In this period, we have seen the emergence of a new panic literature promoting the idea that reorganized economic conditions favor women and disadvantage men. And I, just to give you two titles, um, Hannah Rosen's uh, first An Atlantic article that drew an enormous amount of tension, and then a book called The End of Men, both the, the article and the, and the um, I think there's also a TED Talk. Um, these things are always now converged. Um, so Hannah Rosen's uh, you know, TED Talk article and book, The End of Men, and Liza Mundy's uh, book, the, the, the Richer Sex. So what's particularly perverse, I think, in this logic is a kind of you know, zero-sum formulation that, that if men uh, are losing, women must be gaining. So the, the economic problems of the recession are rewritten as gender problems and gender antagonisms. Amidst the vigorous reinstatement of the status quo in recovery, which we are seen to be in now, uh, the ongoing and marked rise in corporate profits and power, and the remaking of health and education as zones of neoliberal privatization, there's one other feature of the new normal that I'd like to make mention of. And this is the dramatic rise in the U.S. and, and in the U.K. as well in the medication of women's emotions. Um, in, under particular pressure, it seems to me to cope with economic precarity while told that they must ever, you know, that, that we must do, uh, we must always be doing more uh, by leaning in, for example. Uh, you know, and, and bearing in mind the duresses that the new financial cultures have brought to men, women are being, being diagnosed antidepressants and even antipsychotic medications at dramatically escalating rates. One in four women in the U.S. currently take such a product, and I think this is really notable that Abilify, an antipsychotic, is now the number one prescribed drug in the United States. It's used 
often as a sort of a top-up for antidepressants. Psychiatrist Julie Holland has uh, recently argued in a, in a very interesting piece in the New York Times that the overprescription of such drugs entails an effort, and I'm quoting her here, to generate a normal reaction to an unnatural set of stressors associated with neoliberal capitalism. I find it very hard to understand the social tolerance, if not approval, that has been displayed for guaranteeing and socializing the financial risks taken by the investor class. But I suggest that we look to the role of cultural and other industries, like Hollywood, like Big Pharma, uh, to begin to understand what otherwise are very hard to understand social developments. And I think they, they are of use to us in um, having a better grasp on the irrationality of current celebrations of personal responsibility and for neoliberal reverence for any and all ventures that can be deemed innovative or entrepreneurial and an ongoing commitment to what Saskia Sassen and others have identified as an economy of expulsion in which more and more citizens are relegated to uncertainty, instability, and precarity. Thank you very much. Do I put people out of my from here? You can talk from there, I think, if there's a... I'm so very tall that I think I will avoid going to that little lectern there. <laughs> because it might, it might not be able to see me. Okay, so I'm a lawyer, and I listen with deep shock every time I hear that the poorest, the most vulnerable, the people who should be um, the treasures of our future are bearing disproportionately, disproportionately, because some people aren't bearing them at all, the impact of austerity measures in our societies. And as a lawyer, um, and as one of the LSE commissioners on gender power and inequality, um, we think about what can be done about this because it's been analysed and uh, elaborated very well in Stephanie's heartbreaking paper. You know, children suffering from toxic shock is not a good thought to be holding in our minds at a time when shareholders and owners of assets like houses sit on a kind of floating island of wealth. Um, so what do we do about this as lawyers? And it's one of the things that the LSE Commission is actually, um, in a sense, charged with looking at. We, 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 we're looking at the way in which we can inform and evaluate gender imbalance. In the field of economics, this is being led by um, Professor Diane Perrins, whose work on economic inequality and the challenge for recovery and well-being is very valuable, very important, and echoes very much the work that Stephanie's doing. On the law side, it's being led by Professor Nikki Lacey, another one of your wonderful professors, and we're looking at a range of issues. My particular focus is on the impact of equality law. So we've had formal equality law for about 40 years. The Sex Discrimination Act came into force in 1975. The Race Relations Act came into force in 1976. They were bought both, if, if you like, based on the concept that you remove disadvantage of opportunity and everything else followed in a rosy world in which everybody moved forward in accordance with their talents. Not much Many fundamental things haven't changed as a consequence of having equality laws. And we've come to think about a, a kind of discourse which says you have had these laws. Um, do we need to do something different? Do we need to think about different ways in which you can genuinely dismantle um, socioeconomic disadvantage? 
the last Labour government, which may be the last for a, for a little while now, um, came up with what was passed, what, which, what was a consensual idea, at least at the time was presented as a consensual idea in the um, Consolidated and, and Enhanced Equality Act of 2010, which, if you will remember, was passed in the April, just before the May election, which was the idea in Section 1 that government actors, government departments and ministers, had a specific duty to have due regard to socio-economic disadvantage when setting public functions and public decisions and the public framework. So what did the coalition government do? One of the first things it did was to announce that it wasn't going to actually commence that enactment, so it wasn't going to come into force. Nobody need worry about the socio-economic disadvantage angle of the Equality Act. What else did the Equality Act do? Well, it introduced a concept of unlawful intersectional discrimination. So if people were suffering discrimination um, because of their membership of two or three communities, which made them even more uh, um, uh, um, uh, at risk of discrimination, even more vulnerable than they would otherwise be, the dual discrimination concept, then they would be able to bring claims which would allow them to like, if enforce rights, which they couldn't do either, say, as women or as members of BAME communities. Black and ethnic minorities are a little catchword. That hasn't been brought into force either, because we don't understand what it means. What, what do you mean, women and black and and disabled and gay and stuff like that? You know, we've got to we've got to sort ourselves out. We've got to have nice, clear thoughts. Before the Equality Act, we had the public sector equality duty in sex discrimination, and we had the public sector equality duty in race discrimination, and we had the public sector equality duty in disability discrimination. Now, this was quite important. We haven't had consequences, but it's conceptually quite important. It's something we can build on. What did we do? Well, um, the Forces Society, working on research that was very fundamentally informed by the work of the Women's Budget Group, launched a judicial review of the first emergency budget that the, uh, the, the coalition government produced in 2010. They produced extraordinarily telling statistics. Um, they, there was groundbreaking work done, which basically said, you're proposing 8 billion of cuts, 5 billion of those are going to fall on women. And they analysed exactly how, the kind of benefits that women predominantly uh, depended on, whether it was housing benefit, whether it was maternity benefits, the abolition of the baby and infant elements of tax credits, which hit working mothers, whether it was the public sector pay freeze, whether it was pegging benefits and tax credits and public sector pensions to the consumer price index uh, rather than the retail price index, which apparently, according to the um, uh, Fiscal Studies Institute, was the, uh, what do they say, the single biggest change to welfare policy ever. They produced all this stuff. They took themselves off to court and the government said, oh yes, we're very sorry. We concede that there's this proportionate impact. Um, we will do better. We will look at this really hard. And anyway, this is now all academic because we've passed the budget and we're doing it. And there's a very good principle, as lawyers among you will know, that you don't get judges to pronounce on things which are academic because it's pointless, because it's happened. Um, except when... Um, and, 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 and the point about the public sector equality duty is it doesn't stop you doing something. It makes you evaluate the impact. It makes you um, have due regard to the need to eliminate discrimination in establishing 
changing the policy in the first place. So the Fawcett Society didn't get anywhere. But the judge, uh, and actually it's so seismic to go to court and say stop them with their budget. And two or three further attempts to stop local budgets have also got nowhere, partly because there's a kind of understandable narrative which says, well, these are all just big picture um, uh, sums, actually in relation to kind of individual slicing of this cake, where they haven't yet made the decisions. So you're either too late or too early, which is, it sounds weird, but it's kind of legally understandable. Um, so, um, but, but they got the government to concede, A, that they hadn't done the things they should have done, which is pretty poor for the Treasury, and secondly, to concede that the Equality and Human Rights Commission would actually, um, because otherwise it's a bit hard for it to go out on a limb and start accusing the government of discrimination, would actually commission research in this area. And the research that um, Stephanie um, uh, spoke about in her, in her paper, the, the landmark, Landman Economics Research, which was also combined with research by the National Institute of Social and Economic Research, actually produced produces yet further data and shows that you can disaggregate this information, so shows that you can show the impact on, on people who have the right to be protected because of their protected characteristics and at least takes us to a point at which we can, in a way you can see how effective it's been because one of the last things that the last government did was to say that it was going to have a good long hard look at the public sector equality duty because it didn't like it very much. So it's possible that they'll get rid of it but for the moment we've got it and so one of the things that it's worth looking at is just how we can um, make those kinds of laws work. The other area that we've been looking at in the LSE Commission is the way in which just as the, Stephanie's work so illuminates the apparently gender and race neutral, neutral um, provisions in their headline, which have this extraordinary impact on people least able to bear it, which end up being households which have women at their heads because they're sole parent households, or which end up being um, young black men who will never work because most of them don't work and they don't have any um, basis of working, they don't have any household history of working and they haven't any got, therefore got many skills to offer. And in a sense, what's interesting about that is that it's the mirror image of us, and, of us identifying, this will be my last point, things that have disproportionately worked. And one little intriguing um, point for people in the audience who may not know about this, what well, you will know, that the Equal Pay Act came into force 40-odd years ago, and pay inequality, gender pay inequality, is a kind of stubborn saying that we just don't seem to be able to get rid of. What we have is lots and lots of cases which generate lots and lots of money for lawyers, and we still don't really have uh, sorted out um, provisions for dealing with pay inequality. The single biggest provision that actually lifted, visibly, measurably lifted women's pay was the Minimum Wage Act. It, wasn't a, it was a universalist provision. It wasn't a gender provision. But because women were clustered down there among the low-paid and the part, part-time work, it lifted them by sort of noticeable amounts. So one of the other things that the LSE Commission is looking at among the very many interesting pieces of work, and I would absolutely urge you to go on the website and, and, and browse, is looking to see whether the ways in which um, progressive lawyers can use legislation to undermine some of these disastrous impacts. And on that basis, in particular in the world of race and gender equality, there is a notional consensus that this kind of equality is a good thing, and it goes right across the political um, spectrum. How real it is, I don't know, as demonstrated by the fact that the difficult provisions are either uh, repealed or not enacted, but nevertheless there is a kind of on-the-surface presentational consensus that this is important. So I leave you with that thought.
Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so now we have an opportunity for questions from the floor. I'll um, take them in groups of three, I think, just to give the speakers a little bit of time to think about their answers. Um, if you could just say who you are, introduce yourself, and wait for a roving uh, mic that I think we have so that everybody uh, can hear you. So do we have some question down in the, the front? Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Wendy Sigel from the Gender Institute. I really enjoyed your talk, Stephanie. Um, but I wanted to add something to your analysis of why people accept austerity. You talked about fear. Um, but one of the things that strikes me about the election that we just went through and also in the U.S. is the fact that politicians have been really, really effective at selling a particular conceptualization of the macroeconomy, which is enormously flawed. Most people think about the macroeconomy like a household. It's a very, very effective way of getting rid of arguments for austerity because a household that faces a budget constraint has to adopt austerity. The very arguments for social infrastructure that you want to make come up against a model that people don't understand in their own households. And the best thing I think economists can do is actually produce work which attacks that metaphor and shows how the macroeconomy actually differs from the household introduces concepts that people don't think voters understand, like the velocity of money, and, and why it is that with an economy, when you spend or you have deficits or you do all kinds of things macroeconomically, it doesn't work like it does in your own household. And really drawing people's attention to that distinction, I think, is an important strategy. Okay, I think that was someone. If I just take another one just back there. Hi, um, my name's Rob. I'm afraid my question's also for Stephanie. Um, it was a really, really brilliant talk. Thank you. Um, there was a really striking difference on one of your graphs between the rate of unemployment among single mothers and the rate of unemployment among other women. Um, and I know unemployment's measured by the number of people who are currently seeking work who are unable to find work. And I was wondering how much of that discrepancy do you think is due to the fact that women who are not single mothers may have more options for leaving the labour force than women who are single mothers. I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. Okay. As, um, sorry, one down, someone down here. Hi. Um, Sophie Robson, a master's student from King's College London. Uh, a question for all of the panellists. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, congratulations on what I thought was some very broad-ranging analysis there from all of you. Um, I'd be interested to hear if you have any insights into how you think austerity has affected more uh, non-traditional family units, such as the LGBTQ community. Okay, thank you. So these questions. Pat, Stephanie, would you like to um, kick off? This is always the hard part getting asked hard questions. So let me start with um, Wendy's uh, comment with regard to kind of dis disentangling the argument that uh, the macroeconomy is like the household. I, I think that's a brilliant idea. I think it's a, the, probably the best focus for our attention is to actually write extensively on that and, and make that kind of more accessible to the public. Uh, you know, I, I, when I teach, I often do this with students, which is, you know, I talk to them about, you know, uh, 
about their investment in their education, the fact that they're all in debt. In fact, most households are in debt, whether it's for a mortgage, uh, student loans, so on and so forth, and every business is in debt. Right? That, that, that is, the question is not whether you've borrowed, but whether you're generating enough income as a result of the way you spend that borrowed money to pay back the original debt. And I offer my students half the class $10,000 each to go to Las Vegas and gamble versus you know $10,000 for their, uh, their college tuition. And I think it becomes very clear to them that how you spend that money is what really matters. But I, I couldn't agree with you more, and you've given me my summer writing project. <laughs> so there you go. Um, Rob, your point actually is really well taken, and that is that uh, what we might see is that the um, that married women, if they lose their jobs, actually just withdraw from the labor market and don't show up as being unemployed. I actually can't answer that. And once again, I think that would be um, a useful um, PhD dissertation. I hope somebody takes this one on. Uh, the, one of the things that is clear to us, however, is that married women ha- typically have another household income to support themselves. And right, the really damaging issue is that single mothers, apart from all of the stresses that they face, and single men, single fathers as well, apart from all, the many stresses of juggling paid work with caring for children, the financial stress is overwhelming. And it's overwhelming in such ways that creates trauma for children. And that, to me, is the significant factor. But I think this really bears a, a lot more uh, study. And um, Ms. Robinson, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your first name. So I I actually don't know the answer to that. I think um, Lee Badgett at UMass Amherst does a lot of work on uh, LGBTQ families. And I have not seen anything on this. Uh, And I think, once again, that that's really worth studying. So I apologize that I can't say more about that, but I think it's it's a further disaggregation, right? Because one of the things that we find is that lesbian women, for example, earn less than similarly qualified straight women. So we, we you know, this is a further disaggregation that that when we say women are affected by uh, economic uh, events, in fact, there are disparate effects. And I think it's so fundamentally important for us to really give, you know, to kind of elucidate how those effects are felt differently by by these different groups. But wouldn't it, it seem reasonable? Reasonable to, to speculate that that um, those who have pre-existing vulnerabilities find them to be exacerbated under austerity. So I, I think you know, without having hard data to indicate anything of that kind, at least one might speculate that the the, the, the impact would, would would be adverse. In my sense is that uh, austerity logics have the habit of recentering very conservative notions of the nation, of family, of you know the, the individual, and that one of the particularly early um, responses to austerity was this sense that we can't afford special pleading by women or minority groups and that that's just that has that that's a specialty concern that just needs to be you know kind of put on the back burner for a while while we get back to our core concerns and our core concerns generally are you know they, they have certain racial and, and and gender parameters so um, my sense I, I'm unfortunately not able to any to offer you any any specifics either but my, my sense would would be to predict that the Disadvantage would be greater in those communities simply because um, pre-existing vulnerabilities tend to be magnified. 
Um, so just to add to that, um, there's a lot of work being done by the TUC and there's a Unison report specifically on the impact of austerity on the LGBT community. Um, they make some kind of points which become obvious as soon as you hear them. If you cut public services, if you cut um, access to advisory sexual health services and a whole range of services which are aimed at and, and, and to be accessed by particular communities, then those communities suffer disproportionately. Um, that's a really kind of crude little summary of the, of the work. Uh, but uh, th- there is quite a lot of work done into, almost entirely in the trade union movement, interestingly, or, on the impact of austerity on that community. Um, and one of the sadnesses is that there is all this work, there is all this research, there is all this discourse, and because the austerity agenda is so targeted at public services and a public sector pay and the whole idea that you marginalise and privatise all of that um, the, 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 the discourse about how damaging this is to sectors of our society right now and all of us in the long term has never really got traction because people feel people who are not in these groups and whose members of their, whose families are not in these groups feel just fine because their houses are floating up and their shares are floating up and their private pensions are floating up. But just to give you a little tiny example flowing on from um, what Stephanie said, uh, do you know that this little little tiny budget that was there for the most disadvantaged children at school, which was supposed to follow through from Shore Start, which was supposed to look after exactly those children who become most disadvantaged earliest in their lives, this little premium budget for, for ex- exceptionally disadvantaged children has just been cut. It doesn't exist anymore. But if you want to set up a free school, particularly one in which you teach Latin, get all the money you like. Okay, sorry. thank you. I, that, I didn't mean to be polemical. Sorry. Maybe someone on the, up on the stairs. Hi, uh, Julian, undergraduate student at Georgetown University. Um, you mentioned, this is for Professor Seguino, uh, you talked about, a lot about austerity um, I felt you didn't touch enough on what some people have described as the main reason for austerity. So Wolfgang Schobel talks a lot about structural deficiencies in the European economy that led to what he, that's what he determines to be the main cause of the crisis. I was just wondering if you thought that austerity, you talked about myopia, but do you not think that austerity to address structural deficiencies in our economies is a very long-term uh, goal and a long-term project? Okay, there was somebody here. Uh, yeah, this is probably a bit left field, but um, I'm sure I'd like to hear all your three opinions on it. Um, so um, a lot of the things that have been spoken about are to do with um, education, employment, um, and fin- finances and things like that. Um, and so my left field question um, is that if there's no alternative to work and economy, which I'm surprised you're actually not talking about, um, h- how is that not slavery if there's no alternative Okay, and I think someone was down here. I, I was. It's really lively, isn't it? Thanks very much, and thank you very much, Stephanie, for your presentation. It was amazing and quite 
uh, really affecting, I think. I just wanted to make a remark on the proposal of the financial transaction tax, which I think is really important, but especially in the UK, well, I should say I work for Christian Aid, and we're part of a wider tax justice movement. So the idea that you know tax dodging hurts the poor in developing countries, but of course also in the UK and in Europe, is something that I think has been taken up by the government partly and also by public opinion with all the rage against uh, multinationals that are evading, they're avoiding and evading taxes. But what I don't see in the rhetoric is like we want to fight tax dodging and get more taxes, but not to spend them in the things we, you know, we know we should spend them on. So I just wanted to know if you have any comments on like this sort of uh, like cognitive dissonance that I find in this discourse around like tax dodging, like let's get taxes, but for what? We are not able to say that yet, it seems. Thank you. Stephanie? Sure. So Georgetown, is that in the US, in Washington? Uh-huh, great. Uh, yeah, I, I hope that I did allude to what I think are the structural things that led to the financial crisis. Uh, and I, I link um, a lot of these to the growth of inequality and to the effects of globalization, which have bargained down not only wages, but also bargained down the ability of government to, um, to invest in infrastructure and so forth. So uh, I think those are, those are high on the list. Uh, I think, look, I didn't, talk about, I didn't talk about global climate change, and yet I don't know how I can go further as an economist if I can't really integrate that. And we as economists, and I think economists have failed tremendously. Uh, but I, you know, I'll just say, say that myself, but many, other, many others, uh, including Bob Pollan from UMass Amherst and others, have defined alternative green strategies that address many of these structural problems. Um, and so I, I, I agree with you. I think those are really fundamental. Um, and there are many, many good proposals. I, I'm going to actually stop for a moment. And uh, you know, there's a, an air of pessimism here that uh, I, 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 uh, I might have to take some of that abilify uh, when I leave because people are so upset about the election here. And I really appreciate that. But I, I want to share with you that I come from uh, the U.S. at a. <clears throat> a particular moment of young men being killed in Baltimore, Philadelphia, Detroit, and so forth. I think that our problems with regard to race feel as intransigent as the issues that you're defining here. Uh, you know, and I, my son identifies as African-American, so this is uh, very, very important to me. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think change, uh, we have to just put one foot in front of the other every single day. We have no alternative to doing that. And I think there's, uh, there's much that we can do. And I, I do a lot of work locally in my school district. I uh, do this kind of work and so forth. And I, I think that as, as much as we feel uh, uh, defeated at certain moments, that there is a plethora of great ideas about how to move forward and so forth. And I, I just want to say that, you know, we have many long struggles, and this will be a long one as well, but that uh, it's worth picking ourselves up and moving forward again. So going back to this issue of, um, let's see, uh, that uh, with regard to uh, if there's no alternative to work, that, that this is slavery. I, I'll just... Uh, 
say something sort of generally about that. I think that, you know, what we can, despite the rhetoric of of democracy and and where we've come in the last hundred or so years in that regard, that we live in stratified societies and that that stratification has two forms. It has the form of exclusion, so the exclusion of people from resources and and, uh, and jobs and so forth, but also exploitation, including self-exploitation in jobs that pay us too little to uh, to renew ourselves, so we could call it slavery. I mean, I think that slavery is is of a particular form, but the overall issue is that that we all really, uh, you know, as human beings, uh, there's a, a phrase by uh, the philosopher Anthony Kwame Appiah at Princeton, and he says, you know, what do we owe human beings by virtue of our shared humanity? For me, that's the that's the key question, mm-hmm. and uh, so we can we can use a variety of terms, but I have found that human beings are deeply empathic and that our work should be to appeal to that empathy and that's certainly the work that I try to do. Uh, With regard to the issue about the financial transactions tax and so forth, I was on a panel here with Piketty, uh, Thomas Piketty on on Monday and uh, we had an interesting conversation about this and as I said I do work in my own school district and we have issues about funding education, tax burdens because the property tax is very regressive and so forth. I think if you can link taxes to a specific outcome and identify how you're going to use that money, hold yourselves accountable, and then be able to report on what the effects of that spending was. We can build that retrust in government that is needed and that that uh, a, a willingness to uh, f- supply public goods. So I, I think that that's the strategy. I've, you know, for a few years have been talking to feminist economists about talking about a glo- and, and Nyla Kabir, who is here, has talked about uh, a global social fund from taxes such as a financial transactions tax or a currency (laughs) transactions tax, in which we can identify this global pool and begin to um, to generate some proposals about how that funding would be used with some documentation about what the effect would be. I just think we have to do that nitty-gritty work of being able to trace the effect, because what we have to do is that what has been under attack for many years is the public sector. And I think that we have to do the hard work of renewing the, the trust in the public sector by very clearly defining how we are spending that money and how it is actually going to benefit those who we care about the most, and especially our children. Okay, thank you. Did you, uh, Diane? Uh, maybe thanks. I'll just a brief... Is that, yeah, because yeah. I think we're a little bit past time. I see so we I are. Well, just, I'm, I'm glad that you asked the question that you did about work, because I think as important as it is to talk about unemployment, it's very important to talk about the, the fact that for many current work conditions... Um, entail real grimness and that the loss of dignity in work that many people feel is, is it seems to me quite a significant um, concern. The, the um, proliferation of author- authoritarian workplaces um, is, is fairly conspicuous and it seems that one of the things that the fears of the recessionary moment sort of do is that they have a suppressive impact on our ability to critique. In other words, if you're in, if you're lucky enough to be in work, you should just sort of do whatever needs need, needs doing. And my sense is that it's going to be very, very important going forward um, to, to get past that and talk about the reality of the ways in which uh, the, the the way that the managerial kind of workplace separates us from much ownership over or reward from from the work that we do. And I am certainly not excluding universities from that characterization. Great. There's a blog. There's a guy called Hayden who blogs about austerity is the new word for slavery. You could look it up. It's quite interesting. 
Okay, thank you very much. Apologies to all those who wanted to ask questions but didn't get uh, the opportunity. But as uh, there is a reception in the atrium um, just outside uh, now, so I'm sure the speakers will be more than happy to talk to you on a more individual basis. But I think it's sort of testament to the interest generated by all our speakers this evening. So just join me in thanking and especially Stephanie.